0: Again, good morning, everybody. If I told you that there was a simple four-step process so that you could know joy and you could know peace, I bet you would want to know what it was. Or maybe not, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't want to know what that was. There is an attempt to do that. There has been the past that attempt to do that because people do want to know How can I have a sort of buoyancy of heart? In other words, how can I live in such a way that no matter what comes, no matter the challenge or the heartbreak, it won't be met with a lot of hopelessness and despair on my own part? Is there a way to get through life in such a way? If we go back, if we go way back to about 300 B.C., right? So that's about 2,300 years ago. There was a group that wanted to do just that. They were called the Epicureans. They were led by a Greek philosopher named Epicurus, and he wanted to know how can we live a life that is peaceful and anxious, free, and joyous. So he set out to do that. As a matter of fact, he was, uh, there, was, there was a man by the name of Joseph Epstein who Uh, as he's getting he's a a Notre Dame historian as he's getting near the end of life he sought out what Epicurus had to say about finding joy and Epicurus it's generally understood to be about sort of indulging your your fleshly pleasure Uh, but I think it is a search for peace and that's what they try to offer so here is the fourth step Epicurean way of getting peace step one Don't believe in God or in the gods. Epicurus said, well, they don't likely exist. He said, even if they did, they probably don't care about us. He said, that's a very presumptuous thing to believe. They probably don't care. And they're watching over you and keeping a strict account of your behavior. He said, well, don't don't believe in them. Don't worry about that. And then secondly, he said, don't worry about death. Just don't worry about it. He said, be assured of this, that when you die, you just sort of cease to exist. You go into oblivion. Your life is just nullified. Nothing, not a zilch. Get your mind off of it. Forget about hell. Forget about heaven. Neither exists. And then step three, he said, forget as best you're able to about pain. And this is a very cheery one. He said, pain is either brief and will therefore soon enough diminish and be gone, or if it doesn't disappear, if it lingers and intensifies, well, death can't be far away. (laughs) And then so are your worries here. For death, as we know, presents no problem. We've already covered that in the previous step. Being nothing more than eternal, dark, and dreamless sleep. And then finally, don't waste your time attempting to acquire luxuries. He said, Don't waste your time on getting all these things because they aren't going to pay off what they're going to require. In other words, it's going to take you so long, you're going to to burn the candle at both ends to get all that stuff, and the payoff isn't worth the price of trying to attain all this. He said, Don't run after ambition and And money and fame and power, forswear all that. They should be forsworn. Then to summarize all this, forget about God, death, pain, acquiring stuff. And he said, do that and your worries are over. There you have it. The four-step Epicurean idea as the pathway to joy in peace the historian from Notre Dame who was uh, interacting with this he said even if this would work would such detachment from life be worth living now I will go back and just say can anybody pull this off Is anybody even going to be able to pull that off? Yeah, if if I drop something on my toe, I can't quit thinking about it for hours. And if someone says, don't think about death, it's like saying, don't think about big white elephants. Good luck with that. I mean, that's just not going to work. And the pathway of joy is not one of detachment. Yeah, I've never done a single funeral. I just did my 61st funeral a week ago. And not one time have I ever comforted a family by saying, don't worry about your loved one. They were completely detached from life and now they're in oblivion. Yay. It doesn't work. You can't just detach yourself and think that you're going to get to joy. So then how do we? Well, what is this pathway of joy? How is it for the Christian I want to look at three passages this morning from 1 Peter 1, Galatians 5, and then James 1. 1 Peter 1, Galatians 5, and then James 1. And I want to talk about this pathway to joy. So we'll be in those three passages. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Start with 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. You have not seen him... But you love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him, and so you rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy because you are attaining the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Then on to Galatians 5, we'll start with verse 22 in Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, being jealous of one another. In this last passage from James chapter 1, starting at verse 2, My brothers and sisters... Consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect effect so that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. You may be seated. We started a series on this very important subject of joy. It's not that we just want joy, it's that we absolutely have to have joy. We looked last week at a passage from Nehemiah chapter 8 where the prophet Nehemiah said, The joy of the Lord is your strength. And that fortified the hearts of the people. And we need our hearts to be fortified by this joy that is an absolute necessity. Too often we think of joy as just a nice thing to happen if the conditions are all right, if everything is going well. And that is not at all the case. I came across a very strong quote from a theologian named R.C. Sproul. He wrote this in a book called Can I Have Joy? I put this on Facebook last week. He said this over and over again in the pages of the New Testament. The idea of joy is communicated as an imperative, an obligation. That means it's a command. Based on the biblical teaching, I would go as far as to say that it is the Christian's duty, his moral obligation to be joyful. That means that the failure of a Christian to be joyful is a sin that unhappiness and the lack of joy are, in a certain way, manifestations of the flesh. Now, I told you last week that I can struggle with joy when things aren't going my way, when I get rammed in the ankle by my precious child's truck. It is tough for me to know joy in that moment. So let's talk about this pathway of joy. We'll start out and see the first step of joy, it is to believe, it is faith. Then it continues to grow with maturity and then continues with suffering. Both the maturity and the suffering, you'll see they, they go together. Let's start out with that first point, that joy starts with faith. Joy starts with faith. I want to go again to 1 Peter 1. I'd actually like to read these verses. It's a short passage. You have not seen him, but you love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him. And so you rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy because you are attaining the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, these verses in Peter come after a section very much like what we read in James 1, uh, 2 through 4. And, And he's making an emphasis here. Notice what he says in verse 8. You have not seen him, and you do not see him. You have not seen him, but you love him. And you do not see him, but you believe in him. And you can hear it in his voice almost. You, the, the Apostle Peter, his, he's just overflowing with, with love when he's writing this, with joy when he's writing this. And see, he knows that the audience to whom he's writing has not seen and walked with Jesus the way that he saw and walked with Jesus. He may be thinking of what uh, Christ said in John 20, 29, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Peter's saying, even though you haven't seen him, you love him and you believe in him. And the readers were in a bad place. The ones receiving this were confused and discouraged by what was going on because, see, they had put their faith in Christ and their lives got a lot harder as a result of that. And they were being persecuted and tortured because for the reason of putting their faith in Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to understand. Even though, and I was talking to someone about this between services, Even though as our culture becomes uh, increasingly secular, we are going to find it harder and harder to walk by faith and swim upstream. And Peter's telling them, he's he's saying, stand strong and repeatedly reminding them of Christ's example, the the riches of their inheritance in him and the hope of his returning again to take them to heaven. And then what is the result of their faith in Christ? Look at the end of verse 8 and verse 9. And so you rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy because you are attaining the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, look at that result. Indescribable and glorious joy. That word indescribable or inexpressible, it's this Greek word, anakleto. It means higher than speech. And Peter is talking about a joy that Christians ought to have that they can't really even fully put into words. That it's so great that it's inexpressible. It's glorious. And this is the experience that that is divine, that can't be communicated. It goes on, verse 9, because you are attaining the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That word obtaining means you are presently receiving it for yourselves, Like in this moment, it is being obtained. Even while you're sitting here, if you put your faith in Christ, he's saying you're obtaining it right now. There's two ways in which I believe he means that. One is what I just described. You're obtaining it in the sense that right now where you're sitting, you are being released from the penalty of sin. And what I mean is the power of sin is not to be over you because you're in Christ. God has declared you righteous because you're a Christian. When God looks down on the Christian, he sees not the bad stuff they do. He sees all the good stuff that his own son did that's been given to you and I. That's the righteousness that we've been given. And we're delivered from the penalty and the power of sin. So the guilt that comes with sin... It's not intended for you to die. We've been released from it. And then, secondly, he's also speaking to a future moment when we obtain everything he talks about back in verse four of the same chapter. He said this that you are being called, you're being given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, every single time I do a funeral, I use this passage. Because heaven here, it's very interesting, heaven is being described by what it's not. What is, what is it like? What's like receiving an inheritance? Well, what kind of an inheritance is it? What's well, one that, that never fades? It can never be defiled or corrupted. And it never goes away. It's being held there for you. So this is the beginning of joy. It's, it's trusting God. It's trusting in Christ. And you see why those who don't start here are on a wrong way journey. Now, just think about that for a minute. You know, we all get hurt and mishandled in life. It is difficult to prosecute life and live it out because people are going to hurt you. Now, those Epicureans, they thought they had the answer. Well, you just detach yourself from anything that could hurt you. Well, good luck with that. This this guy that I dated, he broke my heart. Well, I'll never date another guy again. That doesn't work. That girl broke my heart. So I just, I, I, wanna, I don't want anything to do with them. Good luck with that. People in general I can't stand. Good luck with that. You're going to have to go to the grocery store eventually. Detachment does not work because you are here and you're living in you just can't detach yourself from life. And these followers of Epicurus, and people live in our day and age too, you know, pursuing all, he wasn't totally wrong in everything. Pursuit of some things are not ultimately going to believe, bring you joy. The pursuit of more stuff, for example. But they're missing that when you start with faith, then you can really enjoy these things. You learn how to forgive. You learn the proper place for your stuff. And you can enjoy it more when it's not an ultimate thing. So faith uh, in themselves even. You know, they had faith in themselves that they could discern the right kind of life. But look at what Peter's saying there. That this is available joy that starts with faith in an unseen God. And again, the hardship of life can make that difficult because it's difficult to see past that next obstacle, that next hard thing that God puts in our life. And we've got to follow a God that we can't see. There's a story I came across. Um, this was by David Babel. He wrote a book called Men of Integrity. And he, he, was, he had twins that were born with a disease called infantile bilateral uh, striatal necrosis, whatever that is. But he had two twins born with that disease. One lived and one died. Jonathan and Christopher. Christopher lived on. And he's trying to make sense out of this. Why did this happen? And he went on to say, all I understand is this, that life is a riddle that God wants me to, I love this, that God wants me to experience and not necessarily solve. He said, when I was struggling to solve it, I found, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he said, it only makes sense in the original Greek, for now we see or understand through a mirror in a riddle, the Apostle Paul wrote, but then face to face. He said, modern Christians rush to put God's truth into little boxes and we want to systematize it and fully understand it and categorize it and organize it and principalize it. And he said, God's perspective on suffering is too big for any of that. And while for some spirituality is defined by what you know, God may be more concerned with how you handle what you don't know. And he said this, A riddle loses its mystery and its power, even perhaps its significance, once it is solved. By keeping us in our riddle, every person's riddle is unique. God is helping us learn to walk by faith and not by sight. It starts with faith in God. Now, You saw those words, indescribable, glorious joy. And you're sitting there thinking, whatever. How come I don't have indescribable, glorious joy, Chad? I get it. Because sometimes experiences don't seem to be working that way. And we Christians, we tend to have this problem that we read something like that, well, I'm even more depressed than I was thanks for that. You know, we get depressed that we're depressed. I became a Christian. I'm supposed to be happy all the time. Let's talk about that for a moment because joy is not a static experience. And if you feel like you're suffering from joy anemia right now, let's continue on that joy grows. It's something that grows with maturity. I want to move on to Galatians. And we talk about this joy of the Spirit that, that Paul's uh, explaining to them, I'll read this passage one more time, Galatians 5, through 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, being jealous of one another. So what Paul is saying to this group of Galatians, they didn't have the Jewish background that he had. Christianity has come. And he's saying that, look, you need to understand that you are different now than you were. When you were unsaved, you were not receiving a ministry that you are now receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He said, you have that now. You're receiving Ministry from the Holy Spirit that you didn't have before. And in you, the Holy Spirit is producing these nine graces. Interestingly, the word fruit is singular. So within that fruit, all of these qualities sort of make up a unity. And they're all growing. All of which need to be found in the life of the believer, under the control of the Spirit... And that fruit is the life that is being lived out by the Christian with all those qualities. And it all points to the method of how Christ forms the believer. And one of those on the list is joy. Joy comes from this uh, this Greek word, kara. It is a deep and abiding inner rejoicing which was promised to those who abide in Christ. It stands to reason, then, that the degree to which you are abiding in Christ is the degree to which you are experiencing uh, this joy, this inner rejoicing. I've defined this a number of different ways. Uh, A deep abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all the universe. Kay Warren, I've used that definition to do, has more about, she emphasizes the choice of joy in the face of difficult circumstances. But notice, and and I think this is key, it is is a joy that does not depend on our current circumstances. That's where I would differ a little bit with Sprawl on the use of happiness. See, happiness is just feeling good about good circumstances. Things are going well. Joy does not depend on those circumstances because joy is rooted in God himself. There's a big difference. Then look at what he says in verse 24. Now, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, be be very careful. That does not mean the Christian does not go on sinning, okay? Unfortunately, I go on sinning. But that sinful nature, that part of us that compels us until the day we die to keep on sinning has been judged. And then we have this victory over the sinful nature's passions and desires. That was provided by Christ in his death. That goes back to what I said before, that when God looks at you, he doesn't see that rotten, sinful nature anymore. You're still fighting it. You know, the, the Puritans, when they wrote, they would write about the daily killing of the flesh. Great book, John Owen, The Mortification of the Flesh. Check it out sometime. I'll warn you. If the, if the Puritans can say it in five words, they'll say it in 500. But it's a great book. Or maybe you've heard that phrase, be killing your flesh or your flesh will be killing you. But we aren't going to have our sins held against us when we are in Christ, when we've trusted in his saving work. Those sins aren't going to be held against us. So we have to always be laying hold of that truth. No matter what your circumstances or your feelings are telling you, that is a truth you have to hang on to, and I have to start the day there. Because oftentimes, as soon as I wake up, I'm fighting a fear or an anxiety. Oftentimes. And I've got to stay in that bed and start praying this before I even think about letting my feet hit the floor. We believe this to be true. This is... This is a life that is cooperating with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called to do as Christians. We cooperate with this ministry he has in our lives. And in verse 25 it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also behave in accordance with the Spirit. And behave in accordance means literally keep in step with the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. Now I was talking to a new dad at our men's breakfast yesterday. He said, you know what? She said, Chad, today I think's today. I said, day for what? He said, I think she's going to start walking today. He just had a little girl. She's been crawling. He said, I think she's ready to stand up and walk. Because, see, we don't just come out of the womb walking, do we? We've got to learn how to walk. And this keeping in step with the Spirit, it's, it is a, a growth process. It is what we learn and continue to learn to do. And fruit grows, but fruit can be finicky, can't it? And fruit doesn't always ripen the way we want it to. I came across a story that I could relate to of of a man who, he bought this tree, he wanted to plant the tree out in his backyard, so he he gets the tree, he puts it in his backyard and it comes out with these uh, beautiful flowers sort of very early in the spring. He said, oh, this is great. He said, I picked the right tree. But then just a few weeks later, a wind came by and it just blew all the, the flowers off the tree. And he was like, oh. But he waited a little bit longer and these, these fruits came out, these green fruits. They were just about the size of a nut. And he took one of those fruits and he bit into it and he went, oh, bleh!" He said, it's so bitter. Well, this was a mistake. He said, this tree is worthless. Its flowers are fragile. The wind blows them off. The fruit is terrible and bitter. And he said, well, when the winter comes, I'm just going to chop the tree down. It's just taking up space. But the tree didn't notice him. And through the summer, it kept growing. And what he didn't know was was that the, the apples didn't come out till later in the fall. And Christian fruit can work in a similar way. You know, you may get early blossoms of just sort of like happiness, but again, happiness is going to come and go. And then bad things come, and you may feel more bitter than you do happy, but just hang on, okay? Don't despair. I see saints that we have here at First Baptist Church, and I see the joy they have, and I think, you know what, Lord, there that's where I'm working toward, and that's what you're producing in me, and I'm participating in in this movement, in this cooperation of the Holy Spirit as you continue to grow this fruit. But be patient. If you would say, well, I wish my joy was glorious and indescribable. just It's ripening like a fruit. God's bringing you along the path. Your job is to live in a, and behave in accordance with what you know to do. And you know what? You're here. Good. Being at church is part of it. Assembling with God's people is part of it. Don't get discouraged. And notice also that faith is a fruit. Now, that's always interested me. Because, see, you need faith to be a Christian, right? But see, what God is telling me, and and Jesus said, he said, yeah, when you're saved, he said, the only amount of faith it takes to get saved is this tiny little mustard seed faith. It's the smallest faith there is, and that is all you need to be a Christian, is that little mustard seed of faith. But God doesn't just leave it a little seed. See, God's going to grow that faith. And faith grows alongside joy. It grows alongside love and peace and patience and gentleness and these are things that God is growing in us as we are maturing. So joy, it grows. The journey of joy starts with faith. It grows with maturity. And then it finally continues with suffering. It continues with suffering. I want to look at this passage in James. James 1, 2 through 4. Read it one more time. But my... My brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect effect so that you'll be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. And this is one of the most difficult paradoxes of the Christian faith uh, because they seem like such opposites that on, on the one hand, while Jesus Christ is sovereign over all the universe, And I can have an assurance of that. He still allows bad things to happen to Christians. And James is speaking to Christians. He's calling them brothers and sisters. And he issues the command in verse 2, consider it nothing but joy or count it all joy. And he's calling the readers to make a decision. Notice that's a command. He's not saying you're just going to naturally do this. He's commanding them, count it all joy. What? Joyful at a time when that is not the natural reaction. And and the word trials there, it can have two different meanings. Uh, It can talk about the inner circumstances that we experience like temptation. Uh, The temptation to despair, the temptation to anxiety, the enticement to to, to, to sin, or, or whatever the temptation may be. You know, you're tempted to cheat on a test, to cheat on a spouse, cheat on your taxes. The second meaning is talking about an external affliction, something that has happened to you. The flood has come, the hurricane has come, the house has burnt down, whatever that external circumstance may be. Both are in view here. He then gives the reason in verse 2 as to why the believer should have joy because these trials bring about perfect faith. And it's important to point out, it doesn't seem that that James is talking about whether or not this trial is going to prove whether or not you're a Christian. I think it'd be awful if every time you went through a trial, God is is saying, well, whether or not you're a Christian. No, I don't believe that's the case at all. It's a faith that exists And I think this is much better, that the faith that you already have is being strengthened. Again, the the, the growing like the fruit, these two points are not mutually exclusive. The Holy Spirit is engineering circumstances to grow your faith. One of those circumstances is probably going to include suffering and hardship. So we can have joy because we know that God is turning us into something better. And the something better is what we find in verse 4, that you will be perfect and complete, not deficient in anything. I'm not perfect and complete yet. I won't ask for a show of hands of who's perfect and complete, because you kind of torpedo it if you raise your hand. But I think this illustration is is helpful. Um, This was something Tim Keller wrote about the idea of trials and he said do you remember when your mother used to say don't eat candy before meals you don't eat anything sugary before meals well why would she say that she'd say that because she didn't want you to fill up on stuff that wasn't going to provide you with any real nutrition and sugar can actually mask what it is your body actually needs the nutrients and things that you need to grow and to get stronger sugar can mask those things when you get that that buzz So the sugar buzz from candy masks your hunger for real nutrients that you don't have. And you know, when life is really easy, he refers to that as sort of like spiritual sugar. In other words, you are happy because things are going your way. Circumstances are favorable. The sun is shining. You're having a a beautiful day up on the mountain. And you think about how much joy you have. Well, that's sort of like spiritual candy. Because when the circumstances change, it drives us to God. And when that sugar disappears and the candy gets taken away, that's when we're forced to pursue the feast that our soul actually needs. I wish I could say that my best times of growth... uh, we're we're in great, when things were just going my way. But it's never, ever been that way. What drives me to my knees, screaming out to God, is when the wheels come off the cart. It's when misery has set in. And we need those spiritual nutrients. And now compare that to the definition of joy. Because if we believe that Jesus is sovereign over all creation, then he has put us in our circumstances. And if we're in circumstances he hadn't intended us to be in, then he isn't really sovereign over all things. Is God going to do things in your life that seem to make absolutely no sense, that are a riddle, that you don't understand? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's going to happen. Now, it's also important to note the text isn't calling us to be happy. It's not calling us to be fake. It's not calling us to put a big smile on our face to be happy about the calamity that we just went through. Oh, yay, I just lost my house, it burnt down. Hallelujah. Did Jesus do that? Is that the example he gave us when his friend Lazarus died? No, he wept. There is weeping and mourning. However, even in that weeping and mourning, it doesn't mean that you have to despair and you're hopeless. You see, that's what the text is saying. It's when we are living with the truth that our pain has a purpose. So putting this together, grow in joy as you grow in Christ. Endure the suffering. Endure it because it's a means by which God is growing you in joy as well. And I want to close with this story. This is from a book called... uh, uh, Hein's feet on high places. Uh, it's a parable. I've I've not read the book in its entirety. It's it's a lot like uh, Pilgrim's Progress, only it changes this, the the emphasis. The, the main character uh, is called Much Afraid, and she comes from a family called the Fearings. And the the book is focuses on a life of fear and anxiety and and self loathing. And she has this family that's just constantly oppressing her and they're criticizing her, yet she's fallen in love with this one called the shepherd. And the shepherd is is calling her up to high places, wonderful places on the mountain, but she's got to make the journey there. And the journey calls for her to have two companions. The shepherd said, if you want to get there, you've got to have two companions, one named Sorrow and one named Suffering. And there comes a moment in Much Afraid's journey where she's tempted to give in to pride, to listen to a temptation, to abandon her journey. And she calls to the chief shepherd. He comes and he rescues her, but he rebukes her. And he said, you should not have let go of the hands of sorrow and suffering on your journey. And those struggling with fear and anxiety can be encouraged. God is using your sorrow and your suffering as a means to take you to the high places. It's not fun. It's not something that you would choose. Choosing joy in a hard situation is not a natural reaction, and yet God is saying that is the best reaction that you can have. It's only made possible when we start with faith and we can trust that we'll continue to grow to maturity as we suffer. Please pray with me. Almighty God, you often put us in circumstances that we just do not understand. And, God, trusting you can be hard, especially when it doesn't make sense. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to recall the truth of your word, that we love you, though we don't see you, that we believe in you, though we don't see you. And, God, I'm praying for those who may be here right now who have not yet taken that first step of faith. And, Lord, if not, I pray that today would be the day that they see, wow, I really do need forgiveness of my sin. I really I want to be on this pathway, this journey to joy. And it starts with you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that today they would make that move toward you through trust. And God, I pray that in the middle of suffering, we wouldn't become disillusioned or cynical or bitter. Rather, God, I pray that we would choose joy, that we would choose to rejoice, that we would choose to be thankful, even when it's not the natural reaction to have. God, I pray that we would be lights to a community that is on the wrong journey. They've not taken that step, and they're lost. I pray that you would reach this community of Sheridan through us. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. I want to thank you again for being here today. And if you're in need of prayer, uh, please come down to the front. I'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, have a great Sunday, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for being here.